Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm uh, on the phone today with Alan Badiner. He is in Big Sur, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in my life. And so Alan Badiner is a writer, teacher, and an activist with a special interest in how Buddhism relates to modern social problems. He is a contributing editor at Tricycle Magazine and serves on the board of the Rainforest Action Network. Alan edited Zigzag Zen, Buddhism and Psychedelics, Dharmagaya, A Harvest in Buddhism and Ecology, and Mindfulness in the Marketplace, Compassionate Response to Consumerism. Alan holds a master's degree in Buddhist studies from the College of Buddhist Studies in Los Angeles, and he is an adjunct professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He has also studied uh, extensively with the same uh, teacher as I have, the, uh, the beautiful, deep, Technatan. So, Alan, basically, I would like to go back to your first awareness, deep awareness of Gaia, because you were one of the first people to bring our attention to Gaia. Joanna. Yeah. How are you? Good. Um, well, thank you for that nice introduction. And um, I, uh, it did start with my relationship with Gaia. Of course, it all starts with that, with everyone, doesn't it? Yes. And uh, there was a feeling that came to me when I was quite a bit younger <laughs> mm-hmm. that, um, that I was part of the life of the planet, that I was uh, sewn in to the spring and to the seasons, and that I really was part of the life that I experienced uh, both around me and within me of something much greater. Um, It was just a feeling. It was an instinct. Um, There were no words for it that I knew at the time, but I remember the feeling and it stayed with me uh, consistently and and has grown. And as I become more educated to, um, well, the ways of the world and, uh, and our role in it as, uh, as um, guests here. So uh, there was a um, moment when it became a much stronger sensation and actually a very important and guiding force um, for the balance of my life uh, some 10 to 20, actually 20 years ago, that involved uh, both an understanding 
of realms that were what you might call extra ordinary um, and uh, and I'm referring to in that case um, my first experience with the magic mushroom is how I knew it yes yes the and, uh, and the uh, sensations and uh, observations that I made with the assistance of that plant uh, have also stayed with me for many many years um, and it was more of a, in some cases, a confirmation of, again, the initial feeling that I had as a young person, a very young person, that I was uh, sewn into the life around me, into the planetary life, and into the seasons and the, and the um, movements of, um, of the world that I experienced around me. So uh, those psychedelic experiences, while they were few and far between, did confirm and accelerate my appreciation and understanding of that reality. Mm -hmm. I love the way you say sown, sown, that uh, the world around us and the world inside us is sown together. That's very beautiful. I I have to say that uh, when I was uh, I had the experience of psilocybin outside this country, the message that came to me constantly was go outside. So I'd love to hear how your awareness of Gaia and your being sewn together with the earth has grown over the years, socially, politically, and in the mystery? Well, um, there were many, many uh, uh, events and relationships and uh, experiences that all, in a way, kind of conspired to uh, further and deepen that relationship and understanding with the, with the greater life on the planet. Um, a couple that come immediately to mind is, um, uh, you must be familiar with the writings of Charlene Spretnik. Yes. Um, and, uh, and there was another uh, very inspiring person involved in the um, drawing real, uh, connections between the feminine, feminine movement um, and, uh, and the green movement. And there was a conference in California called the Greening of the West. Hmm. And uh, it was uh, sort of considered the primary uh, event in the, in the growth of ecofeminism and drawing an uh, understanding of, uh, the, the, of the Gaia relationship that we're all a part of. And uh, it was very powerful for me to meet some of the people that were there to have uh, my mind focused on some of the issues that uh, some great people had brought up and brought up in terms that were very compelling. Uh, people like Brian Swim um, come to mind, and there were, there were quite a few characters that were involved in that early manifestation of uh, ecofeminism and um, um, eco-psychology and just these various uh, disciplines coming together to make again what was clear in my bones more clear in my mind mm-hmm. um so i was uh very influenced by these 
events and, and people that I was uh, coming into contact with. And, um, and as I made reference to earlier, there was early experiences with um, uh, natural uh, earth-based psychedelics mm -hmm. and my greater appreciation for the life uh, around me that I was, <laughs> as you appreciate it, sewn into. Yes. Um, and so I, my path was clear at that point that um, I needed to explore what that relationship was for myself and, and to understand it better and try to make it more understood for others. Mm -hmm. So that led to the, um, my first book, which was called Dharma Gaya, and uh, bringing together a focus on Dharma and on ecological realism um, and, and look, taking a hard and practical and real look at what, what's going on on the planet and what our role in it is and what it could be and should be. Um, so uh, it seemed like uh, an unusual project at the time to so many people to try to put the two together. Right. But to me, it was so important to explore that relationship. It was fundamental. And so I uh, proceeded and made my case for doing this project to a number of people. And uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's um, uh, publishing press uh, at the time, I think it's still called Parallax Press. Parallax, yes. Uh, they, they liked the idea a lot. And uh, I had submitted an early draft to His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, and uh, his office responded by saying they were very appreciative of this exploration and uh, and replied to my request for His Holiness to do the foreword for the book. And uh, His Holiness wrote a beautiful foreword for that book. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not, you know, a bestseller or anything, but it was an important book to me. And I think it's still around thanks to comparative religion courses yes, yes. <laughs> at various colleges. And uh, I've occasionally run into someone who was familiar with the book and, and was happy and, you know, ex explained how it made a difference for them. Uh, so that was very a very gratifying project. But it was the beginning of looking, of looking more deeply at uh, this ancient wisdom in terms of what it can offer as a way to navigate through the very difficult times that we find ourselves in now. So this ancient wisdom, Buddhism, Teknatan, I feel, is uh, he recently has a book called uh, Love Letter to the Earth, is weaving together more and more our awareness and love for our home with the Buddhist teachings. So uh, if you would... Uh, if you would riff on what that uh, brings up for you. Well, um, certainly I'm not alone in feeling that Thich Nhat Hanh is one of the rare teachers, um, let alone Buddhist teachers, who, who is um, ex in an extraordinary way walks his teaching, lives it, and uh, is it. And, and that's very inspiring. And I remember the first time that I saw him, which happened to be I think the second time he was actually in America, Joan Halifax had invited him to the Ojai Foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember that sweet moment of sitting under the teaching tree in perfect weather and watching how 
gently he spoke and how thunderously powerful each word was by the way he expressed it and his uh, the way his demeanor i mean you had the feeling that he w- you were hearing wisdom for, with all of your senses not just your ears and it was it was an extraordinary moment that i'll never forget and i thought that this is someone who i had a great deal to learn from and wanted to offer time to and just be part of this this uh, burgeoning understanding that he was putting forward that um, that we are the earth and the earth is us and and we and the and the concept of uh, love the way he describes it um, it's um, it's it's just so fundamental it doesn't seem uh, there's a difference when these words are just spoken or written and they're not coming from a from a consciousness of of total understanding of the very depth of these ideas and somehow with Thich Nhat Hanh you always you you didn't have to wonder you mm-hmm. knew mm-hmm. that uh, he was really lighting a way uh, for us to go and uh, that was um, still somewhat in the dark and it was uh, a privilege to be able to study with him and to travel with him on pilgrimage and um, spend uh, a dedicated period of time every year uh, studying sutras and, and learning how to apply some of these teachings to the challenges of modern life. One of the quotes from him that uh, just inspire me all the time is, is uh, in when he was talking about relationships mm-hmm. with ourselves and with the other beings that we share this experience with on the planet. He said, you must love in such a way that the person or being that you are with also feels free. Mm. And it really, um, the deeper meanings of that continue to uh, pop up in my mind as I've been meditating on that expression for some time. That's beautiful. Uh, So I had uh, an early experience in India. Uh, Early for me, it was, uh, I was um, actually a young man at that time, like 30 years old or something. And uh, uh, found a, a great deal there to, to learn from, and uh, mostly in the um, bhakti traditions and uh, Shivite and uh, all of the exciting and colorful aspects of uh, of how Indian people celebrate their connection to the earth. And um, at that time, uh, perhaps a little confused, before I planned to return to the States after being there a year, I was given some very good advice, which is to go to a monastery in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and uh, just reflect and meditate and kind of integrate this experience with uh, with my Western self before I returned to uh, California. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was really good advice. And there was, uh, it was a horrible experience. I won't go on uh, at length about it, but uh, <laughs> there were stewed greens for breakfast in the morning at 4 o'clock, <laughs> and the same stewed greens at uh, slightly before <laughs> noon, and that was it in terms of the uh, diet uh, that I had there for that three weeks that I was wow. in the monastery. And, of course, the experience of sitting was new to me. Dancing around and uh, chanting was, was great fun and effortless and even good exercise, but sitting was uh, torture for mm-hmm. my legs and my back, and I was a, not a happy camper for the, almost the entire time. 
But I stuck with it, and then about three days before my experience was supposed to be finished, I um, I had uh, a feeling that was completely new or felt new to me uh, of total relaxation and acceptance and uh, self-acceptance and acceptance of everything around me and a complete lack of judgment and just an openness and a joy that I had never experienced fully that way before. And it, uh, some people have characterized it as a meditative glow or whatever it was, but it, it lasted for a while after that. But it was very discernible as a powerful thing in my back and my legs and everything else that was hurting me. All the pain disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the emotional and mental pain that I was carrying around also disappeared. And uh, so I recognized the power of that practice as a tool for self-exploration and and, uh, and self-refinement. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, I've been, um, not in the bad sense, but I've been attached to that practice for <laughs> forever since then. <laughs> okay. Uh, attached to meditation. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. So... Well, I see, you know, I see yeah. the, the practice is really not being... Uh, a body of um, do's and don'ts or doctrines or anything really. It's uh, I think it's I think that Buddhist practice is misunderstood a great deal of the time. Uh, there is a great deal of literature that has sprung up from people who have engaged in that practice, but I really see the practice itself as a tool and not a pile of doctrines or rules, um, and less of a, uh, a less of a body of teachings. Um, although the teachings are very important, uh, as it is a, um, uh, a map for your own inner work. Oh, you know, that's what I loved, uh, being at uh, Plum Village. I don't like to wake up early, and I, I might get up at 8 o'clock for the breakfast, and uh, the good baguette and the jam and the butter... And uh, and the monks and nuns uh, would always say to me, "Oh, good morning. Did you sleep well?" <laughs> uh, rather than, "Oh, you were not at the meditation at five o'clock in the morning." <laughs> yes. So. <clears throat> yeah, I had many um, many enjoyable experiences in Plum Village, and uh, it was um, a very special part of my life that I'll never forget. Alan. Um, tell us what, um, how compassion has developed in your life. What does compassion represent to you now with the time that's gone by and the, uh, the maturing of the sense of compassion and the giving of compassion? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you're fo- focusing on that because uh, I, I do really feel that that is the fruit of all this work, um, that as the more one meditates and, and uses Buddhist practices to develop oneself, the real, um, the real measure of your success and your progress is the, is the development, the level of compassion that you have, that, that you're able to call on and to... Uh, feel from within that it's uh, to me that's the measure of progress for instance i touched on um, psychedelics uh, 
as uh, as, a, as another tool, which I think can be used together, not necessarily at the same time, but uh, in the same life, to bring about further self-development. And again, there as well, mm-hmm. compassion is the measure of progress. For instance, uh, if there's a psychedelic plant or material that I'm looking at for whatever reason, whether to experience or just to learn about, the first thing I ask myself is, does it produce more compassion? Mm. Does it uh, make you more aware of your your uh, relationship to all others and to the planet itself? Um, is it is it going to further your feelings uh, of love and appreciation for everything around you or not? So those are the rubrics that I use to determine whether I'm making progress or whether this is the right direction or not. And so um, I think it was uh, the Buddha that talked about compassion and wisdom being the two wings of a bird Mm -hmm. that you can't fly without without both intact uh, and working together. And at some point it seems as if they really are one and the same, that there's a wisdom in compassion that uh, that might be the highest possible wisdom, and uh, and in through compassion and and understanding and feeling your relationship to the other and to everything around you, you finally become more clear about who you are and what you are yourself. Mm. So um, as you speak, my heart and mind wonder to the uh, the place of self-compassion and what can you tell us about self-compassion in the um, the chemical pilgrimage as you have called it um the chemical pilgrimage Se- self-compassion well, um, within the chemical pilgrimage Chemical and otherwise, it's uh, um, the the self is uh, is a world unto us, and and uh, we're always in self discovery because we're so deeply connected to everything around us that the line that separates self from other is a, a tenuous and um, moving and dynamic uh, line, and not even a line, but really. Um, uh, something, something having to do with uh, the character of one meeting the character of another in so many different ways. So um, I noticed that uh, as uh, Ramdas would always talk about how he was, he I used to go religiously to his talks annually. Mm-hmm. He used to travel and, and give talks uh, about once a year, and um, I tried never to miss them. And he would always start them with uh, how he is getting better at loving himself mm. and appreciating himself and um, having some compassion for himself and for his bad habits and for his uh, lack of development in one area or another or his falling short of goals that he had set for himself or whatever the issues are that so many people kind of are beating themselves up over through most of their life. 
um, he was talking about how that was getting less of a problem for him as he grew older and he was feeling happier and more self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that, that really struck a chord for me also, um, that, uh, that part of the compassion we were talking about as being a measure of uh, your progress on the path is compassion for self mm-hmm. and uh, accepting, accepting yourself and realizing that you're uh, and being okay with your being somewhat less evolved than you'd like to be. Right, right, right. So um, you've also written about sex, love, and Buddhism. <laughs> yes. Uh, most interesting person who writes about uh, psychedelics and who writes about sex and love as well. Uh, what would you like to uh, say to us about... Um, well, what's the relationship? How do you see the relationship between sex and love? Between sex and love? Yeah, uh, as partners, as, uh, as partners along the way. Mm. Well, uh, love is... Uh... Uh, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh who said that love is the ultimate respect. Um, and uh, I noticed early on that through my practice, I was able to love better. Love in the sense of uh, appreciating, realizing the interconnection with, and I was able to appreciate so deeply that you, you could call it love. In fact, there's no better word for it. And... Um, and I think that comes from the deep respect and acknowledgement of one's own interconnection and interrelationship with, uh, with the world around us and with other people in our lives and with ourself. And also when people, in my study of the Dharma, I have um, been always pretty clear in my thinking about that and I've, of course, chosen to work and study with people who uh, also feel that way, that, um, that the idea somehow that the Buddha or his teachings or Buddhism itself as a practice, as a philosophy, or even as a religion is somehow on, an opposite, on the opposite end uh, or looking askance at or not being integrated in what love is, is, is false, that there is no separation, that uh, there is, in fact, uh, I'm actually working on, I'm preparing to write another book, to write a book as yes. opposed to an edited collection about yes. uh, intimacy and the history of intimacy in Buddhism. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it will be a surprise to a lot of people that there is uh, historically long traditions of uh, evidence, uh, traditions that, are, that give evidence to that. And, uh, and so, obviously, we as beings would not be here were it not for both love and sex. Uh, so the world that we are uh, experiencing around us uh, hangs on, um, on that element, uh, that behavior, that uh, feeling that we call love mm-hmm. and all that comes with it. So 
teasing it apart um, and drawing uh, and drawing lines between these things, I think, can only take us farther away from a clearer understanding. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at how we integrate those. How do we find uh, a path of love that runs right through the tradition of Buddhism, both as a philosophy and as a, uh, a practice? Yeah. Uh, for, to give you an example, yeah, um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, is, is no one could say that he's not learned and steeped in all the, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition and for that matter the Theravadan tradition as well, both as a, uh, as intellectually and also in his practice and the way he lives his life. Few people would take issue with that. Mm-hmm. And he talks about love all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, he's conservative in the sense that you, you know, he doesn't sit around and, and have uh, discussions about sexual matters necessarily, but he is always talking about love, including uh, sexual love, as, uh, as a part of a greater love that Buddhism itself is a part of. Uh, and he makes that connection clear, um, even in his conservative way, he introduced something which actually had a long historical precedent, but a lot of people thought it was just his take on it, his modern twist. He introduced hugging meditation, yeah, um, which uh, actually does have uh, historical antecedents and uh, a practice that was... And you, in Vietnam, which is the tradition that he came from, I think is a very interesting uh, situation in that, in that, well, that was the only country in the world where... Theravadan Buddhism, the old school, you know, based very tightly and closely to the Pali Canon, uh, the early teachings as recorded of the Buddha, with the Mahayana school, the later schools that developed in China and in other parts of Asia. And uh, so it was the only place where both influences were, were present at the same time and coexisted peacefully. And so out of this... Uh, Cauldron um, came uh, a, a number of practices, including what you would call, or what I call, Vietnamese psychotherapy, <laughs> which basically consists of holding another person. Yeah. yeah. And people who had suffered an extraordinary, incalculable um, suffering and damage and, and disruption, losing family members in, in, in a 30-year war, um, constantly and needing so much help uh, to just survive and face each day, uh, leaned on the Buddhist monks and nuns and elders in the villages who would, in some cases, actually move into the house with the afflicted person and actually hold them from the moment they woke up to the moment they went to bed. And this this was uh, a therapeutic intervention which had results. Good ones. Uh, I love it. I love it. And there are other examples in uh, kind of going back in early Buddhism in Sri Lanka, traditions that uh, it's hard to figure out when they began or, or how they came about, but they were certainly influenced by Buddhist life at the time of uh, that signal an acceptance, in fact, an employment of intimacy as a way to, to feel and to promote the connection that we have with all other beings. Which brings me back to um, intimacy. I um, 
I, I, I just say I love intimacy and and I reflect upon it and quite a long time ago I decided if people ask me what do you do I say I pay attention <laughs> and so I'm I'm looking at the relationship between deep attention and intimacy I think those those two expressions are intimately related intimacy and attention think uh, as a culture we are so afraid of intimacy and perhaps therefore of of being present for each other well for so many reasons but what comes right to mind is that um, when we have uh, an experience of intimacy uh, and closeness uh, with another being we feel so good and we feel so um, special and then of course that uh, creates an opportunity to become attached and to uh, want it to continue all the time and uh, never want to see it diminish and uh, as opposed to seeing this experience as some kind of a fluid one that you're part of at all times but at times the actual intimacy of that the immediacy, I'm sorry, of that experience mm-hmm. is uh, less strong than at other times. And being willing to have it have its own life that you're part of, um, as opposed to something that you're capturing for yourself, that, that the tendency is to want to hold on to it and to, and to um, have it always be there just the way it is in that moment. And it's that temptation, which is understandable, um, that leads you into a, into a path uh, of uh, basically being part of the end of that feeling itself. So you're wanting it to continue is actually what's damaging it and pushing mm-hmm. it away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the root of the problem, of course, uh, as been described by, <laughs> by a wiser and greater person mm-hmm. than myself. So mm-hmm. it's really about um, attachment and about uh, wanting wanting it to always be there the way you want it, uh, as opposed to experiencing it in, a, in an open and fresh way. Yes, yes, like, like uh, wanting a particular flower to last forever. Yeah, which is uh, not going to have a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ownership of attention, that's, uh, that's very interesting. to them, 
there's a, a great deal of self-understanding and self-awareness that is um, a necessary part of dealing with those issues. And if it's if if you're not tuned to that, then you can get easily hurt and turn and love as you're experiencing it can turn to uh, negative emotions and right, and, uh, right, bring yeah. about something more akin to hatred than love. Yeah, and I guess the the deeper the deeper the int- the intimacy the deeper the loss and there is there is every at every instant there is loss yes even in the good uh, aspect of intimacy yeah uh, there's a loss there's a loss of uh, of the power and strength of your own attachment to yourself that is loosened up in the process which can be scary yeah. at the same time very gratifying so um, you have an article in the last uh, issue, the current issue of Tricycle, and uh, it's about your uh, time at Burning Man, right. called Buddhism at Burning Man. Uh, would you like to give us some of your impressions of Burning Man and in in terms of the, in the aspect of community, I think is mm-hmm. what um, what I'd like you to speak to us about. Yeah, um, the, the piece is called Dharma on the Playa, and uh, it's uh, again a way of um, uh, experiencing things. In this case, Burning Man that bring more attention and uh, awareness to how. Uh, Buddhist principles are everywhere that that can serve us in every situation uh, and that we can discover a great deal about ourselves and others if we focus on uh, on those connections and really become clear about them so and be open to them um, and let loose uh, let go of these uh, ideas that there's strong lines between these things that that they're that they blend together to be more specific burning man is a place that i never wanted to go <laughs> yes <laughs> i was never attracted to the particular climate which is about the harshest conditions uh, that you can uh, you know that man has ever experienced uh, uh wind storms and extremely hot temperatures and 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 all of this in a place where there isn't uh any vestige of uh life as we know it as you look around it's like a lunar landscape there's nothing that grows there there are no insects there are no no signs of life mm-hmm. and then out of this void uh springs a, a community a city that I guess when it's uh, in operation, when, when Burning Man is underway, it's the third largest city in Nevada and springs out of nothing into this major gathering and then completes itself and then uh, disappears uh, with no trace. So these, that, that idea was compelling, but the actual experience of it was not. And I thought, no, I'm not going to go there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, year after year, I would hear people talk about how extraordinary it was for them and how they uh, managed also to um, be in the presence of great teachers and listen to great talks and also have experiences that uh, 
uh, opened them up to themselves and to others and both psychedelic and social. And so I would dismiss it all because it was just too dusty for me. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I, I, I'm amused and shocked at myself for all those years of not exploring it more deeply. Um, and, uh, because of because of just uh you know climatary issues uh and so but in um at, without going into a whole story i i did decide to go particularly because i was going to be able to work with friends and uh be part of a service of helping people who were having difficult experiences mostly psychedelics but not mm-hmm. always psychedelics and uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, uh, had set up a um, uh, what they call the Zendo Project, which was a space that was designed, a portable space made out of cardboard, but was essentially a beautiful Zendo. And uh, they would dismantle it and then set it up at uh, Burning Man and other uh, arts and music festivals where people were gathering and where psychedelic use existed uh, and uh, offering this space to be a recovery place for people who are having difficult times. So as also a way of the community taking care of its own and not having to rely on emergency services and and law enforcement and all that to to deal with uh, the problems that people were having. Right. Instead, when they most of the time really just needed someone to witness what they were going through and reassure them and help them hydrate and rest. So in, in because of my interest in that project, uh, as a way of discovering what was going on at Burning Man, I found myself there. And what I also found was um, a tremendous atmosphere of a, a real lack of judgment uh-huh. uh, from one person to another or one person of themselves. I mean, people were extremely open there was a determination that everybody had when they came there i think also and it's 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 sort of uh emblazed in the um in the principles that were set forward by the founders of burning man mm-hmm. uh that oddly enough uh look very similar to the eightfold path in buddhism mm-hmm. and uh so there was a sort of suspension of judgment and this was palpable I mean, you could feel it. Uh, wow. People were um, willing to just let whatever expression they felt were, was uh, representing them at that moment and, and not worrying about how they would be accepted or rejected. And it, it sort of was a group ethic that just was so clear and, and so um, so present. And that made a deep impression on me. Um, because when you can drop the judgment, then what's left is the attention, and the attention itself is intimacy. <laughs> and uh, so I found myself feeling very connected to a whole lot of strangers and in a sort of odd way. And the exchange of smiles and, and uh, respect was, was also very clear and evident and almost surprising because there was no one telling you to do it. And you may, it may not even be part of your nature to do it, but in that environment, you found yourself doing it, and you found and you noticed that others around you were also uh, doing that same thing of letting go of judgment and offering um, a positive sense of joy and engaging people from that place. Mm. 
So <clears throat> there were lots of uh, clues, or I would rather say cues, that led me to notice a kind of Buddhist way of living in that situation. Obviously, the idea that people could come together and build this intricate city and then be okay, and knowing that it would all go away mm-hmm. uh, and disappear yeah. and being comfortable with that. No, uh, people would spend months and months and months planning and building and thousands and thousands of dollars creating a project that <clears throat> really just existed for that short window of time to amuse people, to inspire people. And it, it's such a gift um, that one makes without any, asking for anything in return. There's no, no one pays you anything. Most of the time, it's only remembered by those who were there and witnessed it and experienced it. It's not documented. It's just, uh, it's kind of marvelous. And uh, so there was so many things about life on the playa that uh, reminded me of, of Buddhist teachings. So that's why I was moved to write about it for Tricycle. And to my amazement, they, they, uh, I was a little bit amazed that they were interested. <laughs> so um, the playa is a sand mandala. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, in fact. And then it also appears that way because I had the good fortune of flying in there uh, for a variety of reasons. I couldn't go via the roads. And... Uh, and it is an amazing way to to enter that space from above and then see it as you're flying down to it or over it rather it it looks like a sand mandala i mean it has that character it's intricate it's colorful it's amazingly concise and 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 um you know sticks to the boundaries of the the shape so beautifully it's just it's kind of amazing and then in the evening of course it I didn't see it from the air, but I've seen pictures. It just shimmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alan, um, I want to thank... it's gone. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. It's here and it's gone. And one could say that uh, intimacy can be contagious. That's a... That's... Alan, Alan, I want to thank you for your generosity of... Um, of words and mind and heart and time. And I want to ask you, what would you like to say in closing? Well, first of all, Joanna, thank you for this opportunity. Um, and uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too fond of myself as a speaker, necessarily, um, so it's not my strongest suit. I like to labor over each word and uh-huh. uh, <laughs> as a writer. And I'm, um, but uh, I've enjoyed this opportunity to have this conversation with you and to, uh, with each question that you asked, um, it uh, actually is um, has been part of uh, of a process that I appreciate and enjoy in myself of touching in with some of these ideas and as I talk about them. Um, I'm getting closer to them as well and being reminded of their power. So it's been a it's been a very a, it's been a good experience for me uh, as well and I hope that it's of value to someone else or it could be. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.